Hey folks, and welcome to episode 174 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss the text for the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost. As always, you can find a link to the lectionary that they're using for these discussions in the show notes. Before we get into the episode, though, we wanted to remind you about our newsletter, In Medias Race. In Medias Race is a weekly newsletter where we send our followers quotes, articles from Theopolitan writers, video series, and podcasts like this one. We recently started a video series on YouTube on how to read the Bible, and if you're on our newsletter list, you'll get each episode a week early. So if you'd like to sign up, we've got a link down there in the show notes for you, or you can go to our website, theopolisinstitute.com. With that, we really hope that you enjoy listening in on this discussion over these passages, and as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart. I'm here with Brian Motes and with Alistair Roberts, who is joining us from Durham, England. We're here to discuss the readings for the 22nd Sunday after Pentecost in the year 2018. That is Sunday, October 21st. And the passages we have before us this week are Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10 through 20, uh, Hebrews 4, verses 1 through 13, with an additional suggestion of uh, verses 14 through 16 to be added to that, and then Mark 10, verses 23 to 31. And I want to start out talking about the, the Ecclesiastes passage. Uh, this is, uh, has a number of the characteristic themes that are scattered throughout Ecclesiastes that I wanted to highlight. This in some ways a good illustrative passage of what Ecclesiastes is about. Ecclesiastes is often read as a kind of a cynical book about the meaninglessness of life. In fact, one of the key terms is sometimes translated as meaningless, all is meaningless. Uh, in my New American Standard Bible, it's translated as vanity, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that refrain runs through. The word in the Hebrew is hevel, which is, um, means rather than mean, meaning vanity, it actually has a more concrete meaning. It means vapor. And when it's used here, and the image is used elsewhere in the Bible, uh, James uses the image of vapor, for example, to describe uh, human life. It's, it's emphasizing not the meaninglessness of things, but rather the brevity of things. Everything is evanescent. Um, our time slips through our fingers, life slips through our fingers. Everything we try to achieve, uh, there's the, the prospect that we'll lose it. Ecclesiastes begins with a description of this, these great achievements and these projects that Solomon, I believe Solomon is the writer of Ecclesiastes, that Solomon has achieved, but then he recognizes that he'll die his life is vapor. His life doesn't last forever. And then those achievements are also vapor because he, do, he won't be around to secure them, to make sure that they persist. He doesn't know what kind of son he's going to have. Uh, this is a, we know the rest of the story from Kings and Chronicles that his son was not uh, particularly wise. And so his son doesn't preserve the things that Solomon achieved. Uh, so we, we don't have any control over those uh, we don't have any control over the ultimate outcome of our lives or of our projects. Uh, and that um, it's because of the, death is reigning over the world in Ecclesiastes. It's reigning over the world under the sun. And because we die and all our projects are temporary, our achievements are temporary, everything is vapor, all is vapor. 
but in Ecclesiastes, that doesn't lead to despairing or pessimistic conclusions. It doesn't lead to cynicism. You have a number of places, one of them at the end of chapter 5 in our text, a number of places where Solomon gives a positive exhortation to eat, drink, and be merry, uh, to enjoy oneself and one's labor, to enjoy oneself in the, with the wife of one's youth, and uh, to uh, take pleasure in the things that God gives. And a particular reading of Ecclesiastes that can look like a kind of hedonistic statement. You've got a world that doesn't make any sense, that's a world under the reign of death, everything is temporary, and so the only thing we can do is kind of uh, eat, drink, and be merry, tomorrow we die, uh, just to get, uh, squeeze as much out of life as we can in the short time that we have. Um, and although the language overlaps with the language of hedonism, I don't think that's what Ecclesiastes is getting at. I think rather the joy that Solomon commends is a joy that's arising from um, the recognition of the brevity of life. It's, a, a, it's, it's a arising from the recognition that although we can't control the vapor or, as Solomon says, shepherd the wind, there is one who is shepherding the wind. There is a God who rules. There is a final judgment, as he says in various places in Ecclesiastes. We can rejoice in a world of hevel. We can rejoice in a world of vapor uh, because we don't have to control the vapor. It's not up to us to do that. And we can uh, rest in God's provision and God's gifts and the pleasures that God gives us in this life and leave the rest to Him. So the, the fact that the world is vapor and the fact that we can't mold or shepherd the wind is a, when you look at that in the perspective of faith, it's actually uh, a comfort in an, and a, uh, uh, it relieves a burden, uh, the burden of feeling like we've got to, we've got to shoulder the world and that we've got to, we've got to preserve our projects. We can't, we can't preserve our projects. If our projects are going to be preserved, it's going to be because, because God blesses them. Uh, and that's in His hands. I mean, the joy actually comes out of a recognition of the uh, vaporousness of the world. Uh, in saying all this, I'm just repeating what I learned from our Theopolis associate, Jeff Myers. Jeff is an old friend, a PCA pastor up in St. Louis, and uh, Jeff's uh, commentary on Ecclesiastes, A Table in the Mist, is uh, one of the best uh, and, and very accessible commentaries on Ecclesiastes you're going to find. So if, if you want to fill out this general picture of Ecclesiastes, um, that's the place to go. In this particular passage, the discussion of the more general vaporous character of life focuses upon wealth in particular, that there's something about wealth that we would put our trust in naturally in many contexts, that wealth is what can secure us against the future. Wealth is that which gives us a purchase on reality that we can change things, we can make a mark as we become rich. And in those respects, wealth seems to be something that a lot of people put their hope upon, that if we are going to find any sort of strength to overcome the vapour, it will be through building up um, resources and wealth against the future and against the contingencies and um, the exigencies of our circumstance, whatever it is. But yet, wealth, and this coming from Solomon, who has a greater experience of wealth than any before him in Israel, ultimately proves to be um, insufficient to prepare us against the future. His wealth that he puts into the temple will one day be stripped away. The kingdom that he establishes will be torn in two under his son. And yet 
there is something to be found in our labor that is a means of rejoicing and satisfaction. He talks about good things just alongside the negatives of wealth and the hope that we can put in it that proves ultimately futile. He talks about the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much. And then the reference later to it is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which the lord which god gives him for it is his heritage and that understanding is one that presents us with more modest um claims for the good of wealth but yet it at the same time allows us to enjoy wealth enjoy it within a recognition of its gift character that it is hebel it is vapor but yet it's good in its time that there's a power to enjoy that to benefit from it but also a power to invest it in the service of god i think we saw this um last week in our discussion of the the rich young ruler who was putting his faith within his riches and his riches gained power over him that he was not able to give them up when he had to and yet we'll all have to give up our wealth as he says in verse 15 that we come naked from our mother's womb and we'll go as we ca- we came and we can take nothing from it ultimately and everything that we leave behind is placed in jeopardy of circumstance and folly of those who come after us but yet in this moment in time we can enjoy the goodness of god god's gifts and we can steward them in a way that is um a way that puts them in his trust and in his care rather than depending upon the strength and security of riches themselves you know the the teaching in the about wealth here overlaps with what jesus says in matthew 6 part of the sermon on the mount uh where he warns against accumulating treasure on earth where moth destroy rust corrupts where thieves break in and steal where to put it in a word wealth stored up here on uh, under the sun is hevel it can be taken away from us in various ways uh it can be destroyed but uh, what what Jesus brings out in that passage that isn't overt here in Ecclesiastes 5 is the fact that there's another there is another sort of wealth there's heavenly treasure that uh is impervious to those to those uh, threats where moth does not corrupt or things that don't rust where thieves can't break in and steal we're storing up treasures in heaven by seeking the kingdom of god and those are ultimate treasures that that contrast will come out in our mark passage when we get there in a, in a few moments i want to highlight a couple other things you mentioned the sleep of the working man in verse 12 part of the verse 12 is not it it does affirm that the 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 goodness of our work the goodness of our labor and the pleasure of the rest that we get from uh after good good days work but the, the, there's a contrast between the sleep of the working man which doesn't depend on having a full stomach and doesn't depend on his wealth uh and the sleeplessness of the rich man in the second half of the verse the full stomach of the rich man doesn't doesn't allow him to sleep it's part of the teaching of Jesus as well about wealth that wealth brings its own it it does provide a certain kind of protection uh and it gives us the illusion in some ways of being able to relieve anxieties we don't have to worry about where the next meal is coming from we don't have to worry about what we're going to eat or what we're going to wear or where we're going to sleep but uh, at the same time wealth especially great wealth brings all kinds of anxieties because we live in a world of hevel because 
that wealth can be taken away and we can lose it. Uh, we're uh, recording this during a week when uh, the Dow went down, and I think I saw a headline that uh, Jeff Bezos had lost, I don't know, six, nine billion dollars over the course of the week. <laughs> um, it, it hasn't impoverished him. But um, when you have enormous wealth like that, then uh, there, there are great threats to it, and it, it uh, creates its own sort of anxiety. And so even, even as it relieves other sorts of anxieties, uh, I think that that's a Solomon makes sleep here the test of, or the, con, uh, the point of contrast between the, the working man and the rich man. And uh, sleeping in the Lord's care is one of, the, one of the gifts of God, and sleep in the Lord's care is a sign of faith in the God who does shepherd the wind, who's, who is ruling over this world of Kevel. And there's a contrast, I think, also between uh, the working man in this particular context is someone who has a more subsistence approach to life, whereas the, the rich man is accumulating wealth. And the way that he weights his treatment towards the person who achieves subsistence, even if it's a meager subsistence, and recognizes that there's something more fundamental to human existence that is displayed within that relationship to wealth, as opposed to the rich man who seeks to guard himself against all these different future possibilities and seeks to gain security and um, enjoyment in the ple- in the present. But there's something about the very nature of life that um, can be lost sight of through that, that we lose our ability to live because we've trusted so much in wealth. I was recently revisiting the work of John Ruskin on wealth, and he has some fascinating remarks to make along these sorts of lines. The way that he emphasizes that we talk about value as if it were located within um, figures on a balance sheet, rather than recognizing that value and wealth is wealth, um, those things that are conducive to life and well-being. And often that accumulation of wealth can come with a diminution of life. And here I think Solomon is drawing our minds back to the true character of life and how wealth properly approached can serve life rather than being something that um, detracts from it. And within Ruskin, there's this emphasis upon images of wealth that aren't the images of accumulation, the images of solid objects that we accumulate in a particular location. But he thinks of wealth very much in images of water and things flowing, um, which is striking. And it's quite a contrast to the way that we think of things. The veins of wealth and the way that wealth moves throughout a country to give life to its various (coughs) members. And the way that those who own great capital can use it in a way that brings forth Um, means for consumption for others and that understanding i think which sees wealth more like water something that can be channeled well that can give life but something that ultimately can't be held as effectively as we'd want it to be it evaporates it's something that um, slips through our fingers but yet it can do good when received as a gift i find that a very challenging perspective Mm. one that um calls me to think of different sort of metaphors that are more apt to a biblical understanding of what wealth means. Yeah, I've been looking uh, in the last couple of weeks at the uh, couple of uh, works of uh, Jean-Pierre Dupuis, a book called The Mark of the Sacred, another called The Future of Economy. Dupuis is a 
trained as an economist. I'm not sure exactly what his specialty is. He's a has a, a, a strongly Girardian import to his work on economy, and particularly when he, he's got a in, in uh, a couple of different places he discusses what he calls uh, das Adam Smith problem, the Adam Smith problem, which is a, a problem in the fact that he's using a German phrase indicates it's, a, it's an issue that's come up in German economic scholarship. And particularly trying to reconcile what Smith says in uh, Theory of Moral Sentiments with what he says in The Wealth of Nations. And um, Dupuy's uh, 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 answer to that problem uh, is to cite a passage. He cites a passage and analyzes a passage from uh, Theory of Moral Sentiments where Smith says that, uh, that wealth accumulation is not primarily about meeting needs because our needs can be met in much more modestly <laughs> than uh, than we do, we you know we can create all kinds of new needs, but you're talking about basic needs for uh, human existence and even a decent human existence. We have much more than's necessary. What Smith says in the theory of moral sentiments is that we accumulate wealth for the sake of spectators. We accumulate wealth so that we will be well regarded and be the object of envy of other people. Kind of conspicuous consumption uh, idea. But he uh, Smith doesn't see this as a as a at least uh, in Dupuy's interpretation, I haven't looked at the Smith passage, and I don't know Smith's work well enough to know if this is a fair representation. But what Dupuy takes from that is that that's inherent in wealth accumulation. It's not just a deviation or a perversion of, of economic activity, but that's kind of at the heart of economic activity. It's not just about goods and services being produced and uh, distributed, but it's about these social relations that we act uh, and we act in order to, and we, we accumulate in order to be the uh, Dupuy uses the, the term speculation. All, all wealth accumulation is speculation in the sense that it's seeking to become the, an object of envy for spectators. If you, look, if you think about wealth, even, even if that's an exaggeration, that's not inherent in wealth accumulation. Uh, maybe that's saying too much. But e- even if it's, that's, a, that's a driving force of much of our economic activity, then we can see again why uh, we're never satisfied with money. He who loves money will never be satisfied with money, Solomon says. Who loves abundance, nor he who loves abundance with his income. If accumulation is not just about uh, satisfying needs or uh, developing and cultivating pleasures, but about comparative relations, about about uh, being the object of envy by spectators, then we're never going to have enough unless all of us are Jeff Bezos. You know, we all, all have to be at the top of the heap or competing to be at the top of the heap. That uh, that social dimension to it that. Um, Comparative dimension gives gives wealth accumulation a drive that uh, can never be satisfied. And there, I think the contrast with Paul's teaching in places like Second Corinthians nine, where he talks about the abundance that God gives, so that we might be prepared for every good work, and the way that the gifts that we have received are in order that we might share in God's giving process. Mm. There's a fundamentally different approach to wealth suggested there that wealth, our experience of riches, are the means by which we can be great-hearted, we can give ourselves to others, we can support the life and build up the life of others, rather than being those that detract from or compete with it. And that's one of the areas where I found Ruskin particularly powerful, where he talks about that wealth is ultimately about that which builds up life. And we think about value very much in terms of money. And for instance, when we think about 
the exchange wealth as exchange value or value as exchange value we think about the person who can sell their labor for something else and that always creates a problem for instance for how do you value the work of the um, person who's a homemaker that work of homemaking is not something that can easily be measured in money but yet he would argue, and he does argue, that this is the very heart of life. It's that which creates this realm of life, that brings life into that realm. And the very fact that we've adva- we valued exchange value over that, and this very abstract notion of wealth, is a, ju- a condemnation of, of the way that we've seen things. And so whether it's seen in subsist- subsistence and finding value in your labor, in integral to the labor itself, there is a good to be found there, that you are investing your labor in changing the world, in um, developing your gifts, these sorts of things, or whether it's in the ability to subsist in one's life and to extend life to others, or whether it's in the face that you have within a community as you serve them and minister to their needs. Whatever it is, our economic activity should be rooted in life. And I think this is one of the areas, a piece written a while back by John Milbank, where he talks about Adam Smith's understanding vision of a capitalist economy and compares it to Italian economists and their more humane understanding of that. They're still working within a fundamentally capitalist framework, but they see the worker as not merely driven by selfish interest, but as someone who wants to expand their life, someone who wants to find dignity in a community, who wants to serve others and produce good work, these sorts of things, and recognising that a greater theory of moral sentiments that Smith didn't really have really needs to be at the root of our understanding of economy more generally. Yeah, and I think who you're referring to is uh, Luigino Bruni, written a number of books with uh, the word civil Civil Economy, Civil Happiness, uh, subtitled Economic and Human Flourishing and Historical Perspective, Reciprocity, Altruism, and Civil Society. And I've, I've blogged about Bruni's work in a number of, uh, a number of places that uh, you, can, you can search on my blog for that. But I guess, I guess uh, lest we come under condemnation, and join Tim Keller in coming under condemnation as Marxists. Um, I mean... <laughs> um, we should add it. These aren't qualifications because I, I actually think they're assumptions of the discussion we've just been having. One is that wealth is a good. We're not Gnostics. We don't. Uh, we're not. We don't believe that wealth is an evil. Uh, wealth comes with certain temptations, and particularly as Paul says, the love of money and the desire for wealth comes with particular temptations. Uh, but wealth itself is a good thing. And what you're talking about in ter- in terms of Ruskin's image of wealth as a kind of flow. That can apply to philanthropy, but it can also apply to uh, entrepreneurship. Um, starting a business is a kind of flow of wealth that fl- uh, creates flourishing and, and feeds, feeds, a, uh, feeds life by providing meaningful work, by uh, providing goods and services that are uh, beneficial to people. So the, the, those kind of um, warnings that are essential to the biblical picture are not... They're, shouldn't be construed as anti-wealth or anti-business. And I think if we can move on to the uh, gospel reading, um, I think the gospel reading highlights that in particular because of the particular way that it ends. Um, 
It begins with a warning or a, uh, a saying of Jesus, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom. Uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Uh, this is uh, coming on the heels of the story of the rich, uh, rich young ruler that we talked about last, last time. And it's a warning about the snares that wealth brings. But then the promise that comes at the end of the passage in verses 29 to 31 the question comes up, the disciples ask, we've left everything. Um, are we going to get some reward from it? And Jesus answers, yes, you are going to get a reward from it. In fact, you're going to get a hundred, a hundredfold return on what you've invested in the kingdom, whether it's house or brother, sister, father, children, farms, whatever you invest in the kingdom, Jesus is promising a hundredfold return, not only in the age to come, there's not only a future heavenly uh, reward, but there's a reward in this age, as he says. He also says that there will be persecutions that come with those rewards. But that's part of the, that's part of the uh, mix of blessings that we receive as disciples of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is talking about a, a different, again, he's in, in the light of the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about investing in the heavenly treasures, which bring return both in this age and in the age to come. Uh, and they're tangible uh, it's a tangible return. Jesus is not talking about investing material things for spiritual blessings, saying you invest a house, you devote a house to the kingdom, and you have a hundredfold return in houses, uh, brothers, sisters, mothers, and so on. And here I think it's important just to bear in mind that Christ's teaching is not based upon a fundamental antipathy towards the rich. Indeed, when he meets the rich young ruler before in the passage on the section that immediately precedes this the rich young ruler goes away grieving but christ describes or what jesus is described to us as looking at him and loving him and that is very different from the way that we often see these issues as an antagonism between rich and poor and there is a sense of antagonism between rich and poor in places like james and elsewhere but that antagonism is always measured by that understanding of um in places like this, that we see Christ's concern for the rich, the person who is held back by their wealth, not as the wealth being a wicked thing in itself, but as uh, a liability if it's trusted in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, we uh, did a couple of uh, special podcast episodes with our friend Jerry Boyer, uh, who does financial research and is an economist uh, up in Pittsburgh. Uh, and he's done a lot of work on uh, the teaching of Jesus on economics and just uh, the the uh, economic situation that Jesus was in. And one of the points he made, interesting interesting points, was a ge geographic point about the where Jesus is when he's begins to criticize wealth and when he encounters people who are wealthy. He pointed out that um, this is not a part of Jesus' teaching in Galilee when he's in uh, distant from the Jerusalem in the center of. Uh, Israel's religious and economic life. Uh, this is in a theme. The, the closer he gets to Jerusalem, the more overt this becomes, and the more severe his condemnation of the the abuses of wealth, trusting in wealth, of rich people uh, who are using their wealth to oppress the poor in various ways. But um, uh, that that's something that come, comes to the fore when Jesus gets closer to the center of power, which is it fits with this uh, the. With Mark 10, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He encounters the rich young ruler on his way to Jerusalem. 
this is not just a rich man, a rich young man, but he's somebody who is a rich young ruler who probably is not only wealthy, but also has political connections, maybe even has some kind of role with um, the Sanhedrin, with the, with the uh, Senate of Israel. Uh, and it's in the, on the heels of that episode that Jesus warns about the dangers of wealth. So that, that configuration is interesting and, and suggests that Jesus has a, it's not a different message about wealth, but he's, he's um, treating different economic zones differently. And it's particularly as he gets to the center of Israel's uh, wealth and power that uh, he becomes uh, more belligerent in his tone. And when we read elsewhere, or we go further within the teaching of the Gospels, we see the fact that all of Jerusalem will be destroyed within a generation's time. I often wonder whether the practice of the early church in Jerusalem in selling its property and um, giving the money to the church, whether that was in part a prophetic statement that this material wealth is about to be destroyed and so it needs we need to as it were pull up the tent pegs um but this inability to leave behind one's wealth as you face mm. a coming catastrophe mm-hmm. i think is it's one of the the tragedies people who can't leave because they are tied down by their wealth mm-hmm. and that practice for the early church in being prepared to pull up stakes and to give away their wealth, recognizing that their life might depend upon it. And that image of the camel going through the eye of the needle, that that narrow spot that you must enter, pass through to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And if you have not um, removed all these other things, you will f- struggle to pass through to life. Yeah, I think I think the uh, uh, the threat of the uh, destruction of Jerusalem is an important part of it. And I mean, you could you could look at it fairly cynically that people who believe Jesus are selling while the market is still pretty strong. The real estate market is pretty strong after seventy A.D. Um, uh, let's just say housing values in Jerusalem are probably uh, have probably <laughs> declined a good bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, there's a. I think that's that's an important part of it. There's selling while uh, under the threat of this coming catastrophe, and there that becomes a pool of funds that can uh, provide for the churches as they go through that catastrophe. Uh, for those who have lost everything, uh, then the church has the resources to to provide. I, I want to get onto the Hebrews passage uh, before we run out of time. Hebrews four verses one through thirteen, and then uh, the last part of the chapter, verses fourteen through sixteen, is an optional part of the reading. Uh, we've looked at part of Hebrews before and uh, suggested that the uh, suggested something about the setting. We've just been talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, the looming destruction of Jerusalem, which I think is the background to Hebrews. Jesus predicts a great apostasy before the end of the age. And part of that apostasy is believers, I think both Jews and Gentiles, who are seeking a safe haven within Judaism. Judaism has, is a venerable and a legal religion in the Roman world. Christianity is this upstart, legally tenuous. At least the Jewish leaders despise Christianity. There's a lot of pressure for uh, both Jews and Gentiles to join with Judaism. So the the writer to the Hebrews is addressing that that kind of situation. He's speaking into that kind of situation. And uh, all the way through Hebrews is talking about the superiority of the new covenant to the old. Uh, and the, the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 here is focusing on 
uh, Psalm 95. Some commentators have called it a kind of midrash on Psalm 95 that he quotes in chapter 3 about the uh, generation of the Exodus who don't enter into the rest of God uh, because they displeased him. They hardened their hearts and they didn't enter into the rest. And I think in this situation, uh, the danger is that people will harden their hearts while they're in the wilderness of this first generation and won't fully enter into the coming of the new covenant. They shrink back and they end up staying in the wilderness. That is, in this context, they stay within Judaism, which will uh, soon be truly a desolate place. And uh, if they stay, they attach themselves to Judaism and attach themselves to Jerusalem, then they'll be left desolate. That's the dynamic here. A couple of comments about how chapter 4 in particular works. The writer to the Hebrews talks about the rest. They did not enter into my rest. It's quoting from Psalm 95. They shall never enter my rest. But he also talks about a Sabbath rest. He gives a particular meaning to the rest that the people did not enjoy. Several things in the background to that reference to rest. Uh, rest is the condition of the land after the Lord has subdued the Canaanites. When the land is at rest, then the Lord is going to choose a place where his house is going to be, and that will be the place of rest. So the rest is associated with the subjugation of the promised land. Entry into rest means entry into the promised land and entry into a subdued promised land. The temple is a place of rest uh, because the temple is uh, built, the place is selected and the temple is built after the, the, the Canaanites and surrounding nations are subdued. And then S Sabbath rest is uh, another uh, association with the concept of rest in the Old Testament. And Psalm 95 is clearly talking about people refusing to enter into the rest of the promised land. It's, that's not just a rest as in an end of labor, but it's a, it's a Sabbath rest, which carries this connotation of glorification, exaltation, enthronement. Uh, the writer of the Hebrews refers to the creation account when God, after creating the world for six days, enters into his Sabbath rest. That's not just a matter of refreshment or ending of his work, cessation of his work, but it's a matter of his enthronement as the king of creation. After his work is done, he uh, takes his throne, as uh, is true in a number of other places where we have the same kind of creation pattern and then God entering into his throne. That's what the generation of the Exodus uh, refused. They refused to enter into the promised land, and they were deprived of entry into this Sabbath rest, this enthronement over the land because of their hardness of heart. Uh, and because of that, um, there's a... as a, the writer to the Hebrews says, for the Old Covenant people, there's a Sabbath rest yet to come. Uh, if they had already entered into the rest, there would not be a promise of a future entry into the rest, he says. And that rest has come through the new Joshua, through Jesus. He brings his people into rest so long as they follow him all the way from the wilderness into the rest of the new covenant, into the enthronement of the new covenant. One last comment and then uh, get your reaction to all this, uh, Alistair. Hebrews 4 is connected in various, various semantically and in terms of the form, uh, uh, kind of the, the uh, syntactical forms, with the exhortations of Hebrews 10 verses 19 and following. Both of them have to do with entry into a place. Both of them have exhortations to enter in. Uh, in Hebrews 10, though, the entry is into the holy place. The entry is into uh, the the uh, place that, the, along the way that Jesus has made for us. And concretely, this means entry into the assembly uh, of, um, 
of believers. That's the way that we draw near, by assembling together. Uh, that's the way we, um, that we have uh, enter into the holy place by assembling in worship. So it seems like when you, when you bring chapters 4 and t- 10 together, the rest that's being held out, the new covenant rest, is connected with this liturgical assembly. Uh, that's uh, that's a uh, entry into the Sabbath rest of God, into His enthronement, is being linked up with entry into the assembly and gathering together as the people of God. The final verses of the section that we're looking at with the reference to the Word of God being living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, etc. The personification of the Word of God at that point, whether we should read it with a capital W or not, um, it reminds me of the general pattern that we see within creation of judgment um, preceding the rest, whether that's the limited rest of the evening that precedes the morning of the next day, or whether it's the end of the creation itself on the sixth, final sixth day, God seeing everything that is very good. And in a similar fashion, to enter into that rest is through the testing of the word as the word discerns and um, nothing is hidden from his sight. God sees all things and that general judgment is something that precedes the entrance into rest. Yeah, and the, the, um, the imagery that's used for the word here is, um, as, as we've often pointed out, um, sacrificial imagery, it's a sword that divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, uh, so it's a sword that divides and prepares us as living sacrifices. It's also a sword that brings hidden things to light by dividing between soul and spirit, between joints and marrow. It brings out the hidden things of the heart and makes them apparent to the, uh, to the eyes of him with whom we have to do, the eyes of the judge. So we might continue the, the, the uh, liturgical dimension that I referred to earlier. Entering into the rest is entering into God's enthronement. We do that as we gather together. And part of the preparation, as you were saying, part of the preparation for entry into that rest is subjection to the Word of God that's dividing us and making us into uh, living sacrifices, ascending into the presence of God. And the parallel that the author of Hebrews, um, anyone but Paul, draws here <laughs> is similar to the sort of parallels that we find in First Corinthians 10, where there is a contrast between the experience of the Exodus generation, but also a comparison. The gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed by with faith in those who heard it. That example of the Exodus, on the one hand, um, there's a deep contrast that we should be a people of faith unlike them. On the other hand, they had the gospel preached to them as it is preached to us. They also had, um, they were baptized into Moses, they um, ate and drank of Christ, all these themes and have been given as examples for us. And what we see within this passage, I think, is using the example of the Exodus with a real punch, both the parallels and the contrasts, the expected contrasts, and those parallels accentuate the, the threat that we face but also the hope um, that we, in fact, will enter into the rest that they fell short of. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm